This is the Elevate Student Ministry Podcast. Hi, I'm Pastor Dominic. Welcome to Elevate, the student ministry of Living Word Church, where we exist to exalt Christ, make disciples, and equip the saints. Thank you for sharing some of your time with us today. May it elevate Jesus and encourage you. Let's get started. Well, tonight, like I said, we are closing the book of Hebrews. So turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. Woo, it has been fun. Hebrews has been a lot of fun. We've had to dig into the Old Testament quite a bit to understand what our author has been meaning this whole time. But over and over and over again, he's been teaching us that Jesus is superior. And the first big chunk of Hebrews, he systematically discussed how Jesus was superior to every other form of God's messengers. He was superior to the prophets who brought God's word. He was superior to the angels who brought God's word. He was superior to Moses himself who wrote the Pentateuch. He was superior even to the priests that would would, um, intervene between God and his people and intercede between God and his people. And then our author shows how Jesus brings a new covenant, one that supersedes the former covenant. It completes the old covenant. And this new covenant is superior in four ways. It's superior in its promises. It's superior in its tabernacle. It's superior in its sacrifice. And it's superior in its priesthood. And Jesus isn't from the the priesthood of Levi. Jesus is from the priesthood of Melchizedek, this, this strange character from the Old Testament. Again and again, Jesus is superior. And our author is is wrapping all of this up, and he he made this appeal that God's people would walk by faith. Right now, they're going through persecution. It's it's not popular to be a Christian. In fact, for them, being a Christian meant that you might be imprisoned, that your business might be shut down, that your family might be taken away from you. It was very difficult to be a Christian then. And he's saying that those who are truly believers in Christ are going to endure. Those who are truly believers in Christ are going to grow in in, in a relationship with God. And those who are truly believers are going to to exceed in good works, in obedience to God. This is how they would express their faith. And as we get to chapter 13, it's going to shift from sounding like a really beautiful sermon to sounding like the end of a letter. And he's just going to shotgun blast us with with truths that he wants us to take home, with application of the rest of the book for us to take home with us tonight. And so chapter 13 is very applicable. And there's one kind of place that he camps, and it's that we have to guard against heresy. We have to have good doctrine. We have to read scripture for what it says and believe what it says correctly. And this is kind of what we're going to pick up tonight. And so the first sort of few verses are talking about how we are to live in the church body. How do we live with our neighbors, with with other people around us? Corporately, how do we interact with other people? And so let's start in verse one. Let's just read a few verses together. This is chapter 13, verse one. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Remember those who are imprisoned as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. So right here, he's talking about life as a Christian as you interact with other Christians. The first thing he says is, let brotherly love continue. 
This is echoing Paul in Romans 12.10, where it talks about how we're loving one another. This echoes 1 John, when it's talking about how we love one another, that if we love one another, it's an evidence that we know God because God is love. And so if the God of love is living in you, then you're going to just exude love for the people around you. Think about what Jesus says. Jesus says, hey, everyone can love their friends, but people are going to know you're my disciple if you love your enemies. That's right. Love the hard to love. Love the unlovable. Love those who are actually turned against you. Express love. Isn't that crazy? The only way that can be possible if the God of love is, is in his people. Care for the marginalized. This is verse two. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Imagine being in a place where there's no cell phones, there's no GPS or anything, but you're traveling and you get into a town and there may not be hotels, there may not be restaurants, but it's dark. And with darkness comes thieves and you need a place to stay. This was, this was common life. You could either fend for yourself and fight for yourself or you found locked doors to be behind, somebody to be hospitable to you. And this is the, this is the kind of context that he's talking about. He's saying, hey, when strangers come into your town, you should be the first person that offers them hospitality. You should be the first person that says, come to my house. I'm going to prepare a bed. I'm going to make food for you. It should be the Christians that are at the front gate caring for the marginalized, for the people that are not from around here. But how does this apply to us? Who in here is the first person to meet a stranger at the door when they come to Elevate? This should be us. Elevate should be a place of hospitality. Why? Because they're the new people. They're the marginalized. They're the outsiders. We should be the first people that they meet that smile and say, come on in. Come and play a game together with us. I, there's food tonight. Let me buy you out of my own money. Let me buy you a snack at the snack shop. I want to make you feel welcome. Because this is the place where the God of love reigns in our hearts. That we care about people. What about when there's someone new at your school? Is it the Christians that are meeting them first? You have opportunity again and again and again to show the love of Christ just by being the first person to meet the new person, the marginalized, the stranger, the oddball out. In verse three, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. So if someone hurts your brother or sister in Christ, they're hurting you. So we're going to care for those who are mistreated. We're going to care for those who are in prison. Remember, he's talking about Christians who are persecuted. If they're looking for Christians and they arrest your friend and you go show up to your friend in prison and to talk to them, then they're going to recognize that you're also a Christian. So you are, you are risking reputation. You are letting people know that you are of the outcasts of society. That's what he's talking about. You want to associate with, with Jesus, with Jesus' shame, with Jesus' persecution and rejection? Well, don't be afraid to go and love on people the way Jesus did. Don't, for, don't forget to cross the room and care like Jesus cared. And you know what? You may be the one that gets marginalized next. All the more that we get to identify with Christ, that we get to stand with Jesus under his name, with his reputation. So he switches gears. This is how we live in, in the corporate life. This is how we interact with each other. And then this is how a Christian lives at home. 
Verse 4, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from a love of money, and be content with whatever you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Families are the building blocks of the church. Families are the building blocks of the church of tomorrow. But what is the building block inside of a healthy, solid family? It's a healthy, solid marriage. It's, it's an anchor for the kids. It becomes an anchor within the church body. A marriage where two people are loving God together, where two people are honoring each other is the building block of a healthy home and the building block of the church. So let marriage be held in honor. What are some ways that, that we can honor marriage? Think about it. What are some ways that we can honor marriage? I think we, we respect people. Uh, I know for, for me, I honor people's marriages by if I'm going to text someone's wife, I always include their husband or my wife or several other people. Why? I'm honoring their marriage. It doesn't need to be communication one-on-one. -on -one. It's a way I can honor someone's marriage. If we, if we saw marriage as something that was of high esteem, then people wouldn't be running from it. Maybe we need to stop talking bad about marriages. Oh, it's the ball and chain. It's, it's a drag. No, marriage is one of the most beautiful, enjoyable, thriving, purpose-driven things you can take on in your life. Marriage needs to be held in high honor, not in low honor, Someday you may have a spouse. God may tie you together with someone for life. What a, a life-giving thing that could be. You don't talk bad about your spouse, ever. You don't make fun of them, ever. You hold them in high regard, high honor, because our marriage is worth holding in honor. Let marriage be held in high honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. It talks about two different kinds of sexual immorality. First of all, it talks about sin outside of being married. This is fornication or, or people having sex that aren't married. But this is also, adultery is people that are having sex outside of the marriage that they're in. How can we hold marriage at a high honor if we're staining it, if we're corrupting it, if we're, we're defiling it? God has very strict boundaries for sex. It's within a marriage of one man and one woman under one covenant under God. And then within that covenant, God has very few boundaries. Shout out to how awesome God is. Sex is meant to be kept pure. But God, within the right context, permits that it's awesome. That's our God. He loves us that much. But we live in a culture where sexual sin is just, it's not just normalized. It's celebrated. It's like every bit of entertainment, every bit of social media. Sex is just, sexual sin is just thrown out as being average and normal and everybody's doing it. There's no honor of the marriage bed. There's no honor of a marriage. It's not that Christians have a low view of sex. It's that we have a high view. That it's meant for a very special place within a marriage covenant. Purity in your future marriages, faithfulness in your future marriages begins now. Like you may not even know the name of your future spouse. 
You may not know them yet, but you can be faithful to them. But you can take your marriage and make it pure now. This isn't something that's like, well, I'll just, I'll sleep around until I say I do. Or I'll look at pornography until I say I do. No, you are, you can right now begin loving someone you haven't even met yet by saying, I am setting myself apart for them. Think about it to yourself. How many of you would like a spouse that's right now making a decision to be set apart for just you? Body, mind, emotionally. That when you marry them, they say, I'm giving all myself to you. No one else. I've saved myself for you. What a gift that you could say, me too. That you could be faithful now. That you could love now. Someone you haven't even met yet. Let's put, uh, let's put honor on marriage. Let's keep the marriage bed holy. And then even within that home, our author turns the scope to something else that gets us in a whole lot of trouble. Money. Check this out. Verse five through six. Keep your life free from a love of money and be content with what you have. For Jesus has said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to us. He's quoting Psalm 118, five through six. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Paul in Philippians talks about that he can have a lot or he can have a little and in both he can be content. Why? Because he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. It doesn't say that we need to not have money. It says that we need to not have a love of money. You see, Christians have a lot of priorities and money is way low on the priority list. Our family is more important than money. Serving others is more important than money. Being a blessing financially to other ministries is more important than keeping money. Our relationship with the Lord is way more important than money. Money has its place. It's a tool. That's it. Where's our priorities? Where's your priorities? I remember talking to a student a few years ago and I said, well, what are you going to do after high school? And he said, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to be a doctor. I said, really? That's awesome. You get to help people. Why? He's like, well, I think that's how I'll probably make the most money. Like, that, that's it? Your, your whole life direction is based on money? Especially someone in the medical field? You know how much the medical field is hurting for doctors that care? Doctors that, while they're doing a surgery, are praying? Whoa. No. Keep your life free from a love of money. Be content with what you have. And then finally... He turns the scope to the inward life of a Christian. So it's the outward, how we interact with each other. It's what's going on at home. And then he turns, what's going on in our hearts? And he, and he seems to deal with our minds a lot. And I think this is where he camps and where we're going to camp for a few extra minutes. Let's begin in verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led, led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods. This is going to get a little weird, but I'll explain it to you in a minute. Strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent 
have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin, those are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of the lips that acknowledges his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you sooner. So let's break this down a little bit. Just for a minute, let's take a look at this phrase in verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Your pastors have a very specific calling. And there is a heavy weight on it. Jesus says that they bear a heavier responsibility. James says we bear a heavier responsibility. Even though a pastor may come from a different background, he may have different biases, he may have had a different lifestyle, he, he may have different tastes and different things. No matter what, all these pastors have a single calling in common. What does it say? It says that they speak to you the word of God. No matter who they are, tall, short, athletic, weird, no matter their race, their background, their language, whether they're like sports or art, it doesn't matter. They have a specific singular calling to speak the word of God. This is what Paul says to Timothy in chapter four, verses one through five. I charge you, listen to this. This is how heavy he makes it. I charge you, God is listening. I charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus. So what do we need to know about God? This is how heavy he's charging them. Who is going to judge the living and the dead? So, so he's saying, listen to me. God knows I'm telling you this, and it's going to be God that judges whether or not you pay attention to what I'm saying. This is heavy. And by his appearing in his kingdom, what do you do? He's talking to Timothy as a pastor. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So what does he do with the word of God? He corrects, he exhorts, he encourages. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. There's gonna be people that come and they give teaching that's two degrees off center. They're not gonna give sound teaching. But having itching ears, they're gonna accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, their own desires, their own wants. And they're gonna turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Into myths. We have to be so careful who we allow to teach us God's word. We have to be so careful. A pastor has no authority to tell you how to live or what to do or who you are, except that he is teaching you from the word of God. He's a normal guy, just like me and you. But if he is teaching from the word of God, he has infinite authority to speak into your life, to call you to correction, to encourage you, to direct you, 
to challenge you and even discipline you because he's coming not from his own mind, not from his own opinions or his own philosophies, but he's speaking truth from the word of God. Other than that, he has no rights. His authority over our lives is only to the extent that he is correctly teaching the Bible. Whether it's preaching or counseling or correcting, he needs to open the Bible and teach what God has to say. There's this really interesting example in Acts chapter 17. Paul and Silas are preaching and a mob comes after them and so they have to get out of there quickly. And they go to this little town called Berea. And there in Berea, Paul teaches, he opens the word of God, and this is what it says about the Bereans. This is so cool. I think, is it up here? Do we have this? If not, open your Bibles to Acts 17. Keep your thumb in Hebrews, we're going back. Acts 17, we're going to go to verse 11. Yes, there it is. Okay, you don't have to turn. Check this out. Paul is teaching from God's word, and this is what it says about the Bereans. It says, they received the word, not Paul's philosophy, not his good ideas, not his enthusiasm, not his motivational speeches, not his TED talk. It says they received the word, God's word, scripture, the Bible, with all eagerness. So because Paul opens the Bible, they got excited. They're like, yes, this is where we go. This is where we come from. Let's go, Paul, with all eagerness. And what does it say they did? Examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Every day they're checking out their own scriptures to make sure what Paul was teaching was accurate. So they're excited that Paul's teaching from the Bible, but they don't take it at his word. They search the scriptures for themselves and they confirm that what Paul is teaching is true. And when they found it to be true, what happens? Many of them, therefore, believed. That needs to be us. If a pastor steps up, or a preacher, or a YouTube preacher, and he comes out and he says, you know, on my way to work the other day, I was thinking, and you know, I've got three points that I just want to make sure that you understand. You need to be like, mm, three of your points, three of your philosophies, your ideas, your motivational speeches, but... We need to get excited when someone steps up and says, I'm so glad you guys are here tonight. Let's turn our Bibles to John chapter 14. And we're like, ooh, we're about to get some truth. But still, we don't stop there. As they're teaching, as the YouTube preacher is going on or the podcast or whatever it is, we need to care enough to say, does what he says line up with Scripture? Is he 100% teaching the Bible or is it 98% or 90% or is it 80% but it sounds really good? We need to be careful. The Bereans weren't interested in opinions or philosophies. They wanted truth and that needs to be where we are. So a pastor, a preacher has zero authority apart from the word of God right here. We have to be careful. And when he teaches the word of God, we should give it gravity in our lives, that our lives would change according to scripture. And then it says this, in verse 7b, the second half of verse 7, it says, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So things that it doesn't say, it doesn't say imitate your leaders blindly. What it does say is consider their way of life 
Is it lining up with the word of God that they're speaking? And if so, imitate their faith. So what is the standard that we compare pastors, teachers, preachers to? Do we compare them to ourselves? Do we compare them to celebrities? No, we compare their lives to God's word. Are they living like God's word? If so, we imitate their lifestyles. Paul got bold in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. He says, be imitators of me because I'm imitating Christ. Verse, or Ephesians chapter 4, I want to read this to you. And you can turn there if you'd like. It says, Ephesians chapter 4, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. This is why God has put pastors teachers, preachers into our lives. Ephesians 4, I'm going to start in verse 11. It says this, And God gave apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. So why did he give us these men with these roles? To equip the saints, to equip Christians, to prepare Christians for the work of ministry. What? Are all of us supposed to be in full-time ministry? No. But wherever we go, we're ministers. Wherever we go, we're saints. Wherever we go, we're teachers and ambassadors. We're, we're living letters of recommendations for God to equip us for ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Brotherly love, reaching to the outsiders, loving those who are, who are marginalized until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature adulthood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Whoa, these are, this is high language. Verse 14. So why do we have pastors, teachers, evangelists in our lives? Verse 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Why do we need biblically based pastors, preachers, teachers, prophets, evangelists? Why do we need them? Yes, because weird teachings, Christianity that is watered down, strange philosophies are like wind and waves on a boat. And we're in this boat and we're getting battered by these waves, battered by these winds. And we need to have something that's anchored, something that's solid, something that doesn't move. And the only way we're going to be anchored solid and not move is if we have a solid understanding of this. Which means we need people that are teaching us how to understand it correctly. Doctrine matters. Doctrine is a set of beliefs. Our set of beliefs based on the Bible matters. It matters that those beliefs are accurate and line up to Jesus' teachings. Doctrine matters. Let me give you a couple of examples. There's a lot of philosophies that Christians will quickly adopt into their language and into their mindsets. We went through this at Homer Christian School. Maybe, maybe you've heard some of these before. Uh, philosophies like live your own truth or I am enough. Or you only live once. No, you don't. You have an eternity you have to be considering. Like these are kind of things that we, we sort of grab right onto them. They sound good. And so we, we adopt them quickly. That's, that's one of these things. That's a, it's a diverse teaching. Now, let's keep going. Verse 8 in Hebrews. 
says this, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Why is that comforting? Because truth doesn't change. Oh, isn't that nice? Truth doesn't change. Truth was the same yesterday. Truth is the same today. Truth is the same tomorrow. Now, culture changes all around it. But we know that when we learn truth, when we're anchored in what's true, it doesn't change with the times. It doesn't change with society. It doesn't change with my feelings. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse or various or strange teachings. For it is, the, it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace and not by foods. Diverse and strange teachings. So those are some of the teachings that we, we kind of grab onto fast. Some of the cultural proverbs. But how about weird ones? I, I had a friend for a few years uh, back in Florida, and I touched base with him maybe a year ago, and he told me that he now reads the Bible totally different. In fact, he is completely convinced that Jesus was the devil in disguise. And I was like, wow, that's strange and makes no sense. Like that, that's right down to what Jesus told the Pharisees, that they're, they're accusing the Holy Spirit of doing the devil's works. He's accusing Jesus of being the devil in disguise. So all you can anchor on is now the Old Testament, which points to Jesus. So the devil raised himself from the dead. Like, is the devil the God of life? It's, it makes no sense. And he was so pushy. We got to the point that I was like, look, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, and you're not going to talk about him like this. And we ended the friendship there. Like we have to be so careful of strange teachings that maybe, that maybe start to sound really good when it's pushed by someone who's convincing. We need to be careful of diverse teachings that takes Christianity and adds just a little bit of something else, just a little bit of water diluting down truth. We have to be careful. Now, right here in these verses, when it's talking about the altar and these animals and, and the animal being taken outside of the gate, it's talking about Judaism because this audience right here in Hebrews, they have this strong temptation to go back to Judaism because Judaism is socially acceptable. Judaism says if you do these things, then you are automatically good to go with God. And so there's a big temptation to go back. And so when he's talking about these things, when he says um, that we, we are strengthened by grace and not by the foods that we eat. He's talking about the Jewish dietary laws. They thought eating the right things would make them holy and God would like them more. And he's saying, no, 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 we need God's grace, not the right food. And then, uh, I love this, he says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. So he's saying, look, there's priests and they get to eat the food that's sacrificed on the altar at the temple. But we have an altar that not even those priests have a right to eat at. Those priests that are so busy wrapped up in their Jewish laws, they're so wrapped up in trying to earn their salvation and thinking really highly of themselves, they don't get to go to the altar of the heavenly tabernacle. This is, this is strong language. Only Christ is, is worthy of going to that altar. And then he talks about the bodies of those animals. So these sacrifices, they're taken outside of the camp and burned. Jesus fulfilled everything of the Jewish law to the point that where did Jesus die? He died outside the city gate on Golgotha on the cross because he was fulfilling every step of that sacrifice that was pictured in the Jewish law that becomes a reality for every Christian. 
So Jesus, verse 12, Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. And we talked about that at length in the book of Hebrews. Verse 13, and this is where he challenges them. This is where he challenges us. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. So where are we gonna meet Jesus? It's gonna be outside the popular camp. It's gonna be outside society's norms. It's gonna be outside cultural PC, political correctness. We're gonna have to meet Christ in a place that makes us weird, that makes us the outsider, that might even make us the outcast of society. And what, what happens when we do? We join Christ in bearing his reproach. It's an honorable thing. It's a blessed thing that we get to stand with Christ as being outcast. I think there are some of us in here that are really, really concerned about what people think of us. I'll raise my hand to that. You don't have to raise your hand. I'll go ahead and raise mine. We get really concerned about what people think of us. We really are concerned that someone might nail us down as being, you know, a Christian or too holy or whatever. Man, what, what if people think that about us? They might think that we care about people. They, they really might think that, you know, we're strange because we don't follow thinking about evolution or we don't follow, you know, sleeping together with boyfriends and girlfriends. Like, oh man, you're the holier than thou's or you're too good or whatever. But, but what's he saying? He's saying those who follow Christ, they're going to be okay with living outside the camp, outside of socially acceptable. You may be called a bigot. You may be called whatever names. And we can answer those. We can respond to those with love. But we may be outside the camp just a little bit, or maybe a lot bit. Let's keep going. Verse 14. For here we have no lasting city. There's nothing here for us. This is all going to get burned up. It's all going to die. It's all going to go away. We have no lasting city here. But just like it talked about in Hebrews 12, we seek the city that is to come, an eternal city. So through Jesus, through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise. So right now, he's talking to them. These priests, they're taking animals and they're killing animals and it's doing nothing. But God's people are bringing a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice of praise. It's a sacrifice, look at this. It's a sacrifice of not neglecting to do good, of sharing what we have. These are sacrifices that are pleasing to God, of loving people. And then he touches back on obeying leaders. Verses 17 through 19, obey your leaders, submit to them. They are keeping watch over your souls. What a heavy charge. If there's any men in here, you feel called in the ministry, it's a heavy, heavy charge. Women, if you're going to be glued together with a man for the rest of your life that's called into ministry, it's a heavy charge. It's a good one, but it's heavy. And then he says this, and this is speaking to all the people that make a pastor's life hard. He says, let them do this with joy and not with groaning. I can tell you it's hard. I've been behind the scenes of a lot of churches. I've been a youth pastor in four different churches, and I can tell you that pastors get angry notes slipped under the doors. They get emails that blast them for no reasons. They get talked about about things that, that don't even make sense, things they never said are spread around like rumors. Pastors have a hard time. And he's saying, look, love your pastors. Don't make their life one big groan section. Let them enjoy serving the body. Encourage them, lift them up. Constantly be in their corner. They're human too. If they make mistakes, forgive them, support them. Make their job as easy as you can. And then listen to this. As a pastor, he says this, pray for us. Pray for us. 
When's the last time you prayed for your pastor? When's the last time you lifted up Pastor Ben? Or if you go to a different church, when's the last time you prayed for your pastor? When's the last time you prayed for your teachers at your school? When is it? This should be part every day. You should be praying for the people that God says are looking after your soul. Pray for them. Verse 18, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you all the more honestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you sooner. Whoever our author is in Hebrews, he's probably in prison and he's wanting to be restored to the people that he loves. Verse 20, now may the God of peace who brought you again from the dead, our, oh, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Look at this for a second. I'm not going to take long. Look at the end goal of all of this. The God of peace. Who is the God of peace? He raised Jesus from the dead. Who is the God of peace? He's the great shepherd. And it's by the covenant, the one that we've been talking about in Hebrews, the new covenant established in Jesus' blood, he says he's doing all of this to equip you and me, Christians. Why is he equipping us? That we can do God's will. Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. This is all coming back to God. Christianity has never been about me and you. The gospel is not about me and you. The, you and I are a means to an end, and the end is that God's will is done and God receives glory. I want to say that again. Listen to me. Everyone look up. As Pastor Celestine says, lean in, come closer. We are not the goal of Jesus' work. We're not. Jesus works in our lives for the sake of his will being done and his getting glory. We are a beautiful, blessed, fortunate means to an end that God would snatch us out and save us so that he gets the glory. Be careful of preachers that make the gospel about you or make the gospel about themselves. It's always been about Jesus. It's always been about God's glory. And then he closes with his final appeal. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation. What is that? It's 13 chapters. Bear with my word of exhortation. Because I've written you briefly. It seemed long. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released. Yay, good job, Timothy, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all of your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy, send their greetings. Verse 25, grace be with all of you. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you for the book of Hebrews and whoever you inspired to write it for us. Thank you, Jesus, that you are superior to all. I pray that you are superior to all things in your people's lives. Right now, I pray that there is there's a young man and there's a young woman in here right now that they're making a choice to make you superior over their lives. <laughs> Let me change that language, Father. Lord, I pray that they would recognize that you are already superior in their lives and they would submit to you. I thank you, Lord, for what you're doing. I thank you, Lord, for this incredible book. Let it be one that we revisit over and over and over again. Let it breathe life into your people because you wrote it, and you have the breath of life. Lord, I thank you for what you're doing in this place. And every man and woman in here, in Jesus' name, amen. 
Thanks for listening, and a special thanks to all of you who have subscribed, shared episodes, and left reviews. If you would like to learn more about Elevate, you can visit us at iloveelevate.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for everything you do that brings faith, hope, and love to the world around you. Now go, follow Jesus.